the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're looking at banking culture and Brexit. You'll hear Joe Brennan, Cliff Taylor and David Hall talking about banking culture in the wake of the central bank's report to government this week. In the second half of the show, Chris Johns tells me why he now thinks there's a strong possibility of a no-deal Brexit. Now, first, we'll start, as always, with our roundup of the main business stories of the week. And I'm joined in studio by Laura Slattery of the Irish Times. Laura, you're very welcome. And we're going to begin with Ryanair pilots. As we know, they've uh, had some strikes of late, uh, but the airline is fighting back today. Well, I mean, it's fought back in quite a stark way in the sense that it has put 300 people on protective notice, uh, 100 pilots, 200 cabin crew in Dublin. It attributed the decision in part to the recent strikes and we've had three one-day strikes and there's a fourth lined up now for next Friday, mm. the 3rd of August. Are these strikes having any real impact? Because on one of the days that pilots uh, took industrial action, for example, there was 16 flights cancelled and I think Ryanair something like 2,500 flights a day going across Europe. It doesn't seem like an awful lot. Is it really having a meaningful impact? Well, Ryanair obviously has a lot of agency pilots who, who aren't mm. striking. So whenever it has a strike, it can cover quite a lot of the schedule. That's true. And of course, the whole idea of a strike is to cause inconvenience and noticeable disruption in order to get the company to listen to the uh, concerns of the uh, union involved. So I don't know how many times they're going to have to strike before this issue is resolved. But they, the unions today have certainly not taken the protective notice very lightly. Yeah, what's their response? Well, they've said it's hardened their resolve. They're they're trying to push certain issues forward. I mean, management in Ryanair tends to take quite an abrasive approach to these things. So um, the uh, chief marketing officer, Kenny Jacobs, there re- recently said, you know, they've got great jobs. They've earned up to 200000 a year. And, you know, the union has said in response, it's not about money. You know, these are about issues such to do with base transfers and promotions and leave and various mm. other issues. They're quite well paid the pilots too, aren't they? They are, but if they, I mean, that's a reflection, I think, of the kind of job it is. It is a huge level mm. of responsibility. There is a level of skill, obviously, involved. I don't know about you, Kieran, but I, I like the idea of my pilot being quite a happy uh, employee. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm fully in favour of that uh, and for them to have a few grey hairs as well. I think it's always important. And now Ryanair, perhaps more importantly for customers, Ryanair has decided to reduce the number of aircraft it's going to have based in Dublin over the winter uh, from 30 to 24. So this could have an impact on its schedule out of Ireland. That's true. Yeah, we don't know the full details of that yet, but it seems like that some some of the frequency of some routes will be, uh, will be reduced. Yeah. Yeah. Now there has been a cost of all of this for Ryanair, hasn't it? Hasn't there? There's they've had their published their Q1 results uh, this week. Yeah, I mean it's their Q1 is the calendar Q2, so mm. to speak. So <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's technical finance journalism uh, stuff. But yeah, the three months to the end of June, and its profits were down by twenty percent on the same quarter last year. So this will make a, a huge profit, three hundred. 19 million. But uh, Michael O'Leary was attributing this fall to lower airfares, uh, mm. higher oil prices, the higher pilot costs and the timing of Easter. Easter was the, the 1st of April this year, but obviously some of the, the outgoing flights, I guess, were in the, the first quarter. So that in itself, may, you know, it's a, it's a big drop. But I think it's another interesting indicator, I think, that its share price hasn't recovered since last year's, you know, mass cancellations. It's down uh, from a, a sort of a high last August to a, a low earlier this week. 
it had fallen 29%. Which quite, that's quite a lot, that's you know, lot, for, for a company it, like Ryanair. I think crucially for investors, they said that they really have very little visibility on forward bookings and, and that's probably one of the more important elements. Now, another company that had results out this week is Alphabet, which is the parent yes. of Google, the internet yeah. giant. Full steam ahead for Google. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, it's interesting, actually, because there's this sort of uh, narrative in the tech news media that at the moment about Apple and Amazon racing to be the first trillion dollar uh, company. Now, Google isn't in that race, but it's it's powering ahead in its own in its own way. And uh, the results were ahead uh, of expectations. And that yeah. was even in spite of this big fine that it received from the European Commission last week. Yeah, 4.3 billion euro, five billion dollars. It was a fine, antitrust fine about how it had run its uh, shopping service and on the Android uh, system. And it's uh, it's uh, kind of, uh, seems to have absorbed that, or at least it, it looks like, you know, everyone seems pretty sure that it will. Uh, also, there's new privacy rules, of course, in place in Europe, and it looks like it's going to be able to cope just fine with them. It's results were good because its costs didn't rise as, as much as expected whilst its revenue just powered ahead. I mean, if you look at um, Google, of course, is the, the sort of main mm. unit within Alphabet and Alphabet had 32.7 billion second quarter revenue and 86% of that came from Google, which is Google's advertising business. So it was way ahead of estimates. So it's, it's continuing to, to grow. Important in an Irish context, revenues. obviously, a lot of jobs here. And mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of those Irish workers have stock in Google. Yeah. Or I hope to do at least. Uh, so good news for them. Yeah, it is good news for them. It'll be, I suppose, from the Google point of view, they're only real. The unknown, known unknown is whether or not Amazon will eat up some of their advertising business and also whether or not yeah, YouTube, which Google owns, is, will have more competition from Netflix, uh, Netflix and other yeah. tech platforms. You know, it's really, it's it's at the, the, the sort of fang stocks are all kind of battling with each other in, in some ways, um, but they're powering ahead of everybody else. Now, Elon Musk, he's the executive who keeps on giving with his quotes. Yeah, Elon Musk is becoming those people like, when when do we not write about him? Because almost everything he says is a headline. I mean, it's yeah. actually, but it's actually... Tesla founder, of course, best known yeah. for that. I mean, it, it got from the sublime to the ridiculous to the, the, quite frankly, very disturbing. I mean, last week, he completely baselessly branded one of the uh, rescuers in the Thai cave operation, a, a, a pedo, mm, on Twitter. And it looks like being it's going to be a very costly tweet costly libel uh, by Mr. Musk because the diver, the cave diver Vernon Unsworth, he, he said he's going to mm. take legal action or he's, he's hinted that he will. So, you know, this is this was just coming, this coming just days after one of the institutional investors in, in Tesla, that's uh, Musk's uh, electric car company, Bailey Gifford, that company said Musk should probably lay off all these public attacks. You know, he'd also mm. sort of got into lots of spats with the analysts giving out about their bonehead questions and their dry questions. And these are actually quite important, <laughs> if mm. rather dry, if rather dry questions about Tesla's uh, capital seems to be requirements. Rather thin-skinned. Yeah, he doesn't seem to have any kind of edit button for himself um, there was a the bizarre um, <laughs> this is where it gets ridiculous dispute with a, a, a potter from Colorado a maker of mugs mm. who had a design a, a farting unicorn design the unicorn f- farts el- electricity so um, yeah as the electric car guy Musk was quite taken with that and he tweeted a year, a year ago and how, how much he liked the design only for the, <laughs> this guy's daughter to find that they were using it on a whole lot of Tesla uh, products and and 
literature. And she was like, you're not, you're not above copyright, Mr. Musk. And initially he, he's like, sure, what, what are you all complaining about? Uh, you should be happy with the attention I've brought your farting unicorn mugs. That was settled though, wasn't it? it it's been, recently it's been so settled. Been to, told, to, yeah. we, it's been settled apparently to everyone's satisfaction. So I don't know. We don't know if that means money has changed hands. I mean, really, you, you know, you should be paying up for <laughs> using somebody's design. That's uh, You don't just rip off somebody's design. Uh, and he can well afford it uh, as a billionaire. So hopefully that was a happy ending all around. But in, in the middle of it all, it's just kind of like, just as, as you say, another headline, mm. farting unicorn mug dispute. Elon Musk and you know if click 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 <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely all right well it's been good for us I have to say because uh, Elon Musk stories tend to do well for us online and uh, anyway uh, we'll see how that plays out Laura thank you for that thanks Karen. Now, on Tuesday, the Central Bank of Ireland published a report on the behaviour and culture within the five Irish retail banks in Ireland. This follows the tracker mortgage scandal. The findings were largely negative and the regulator is planning more active supervision along with new accountability regime for senior executives. Joining me in the studio to consider the report's findings are Joe Brennan and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times and David Hall, a long-time critic of the culture within Irish banks in his role as director of the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation. Uh, Joe, you've been doing the heavy lifting, as it were, on this report. Uh, tell us about the main features. Yeah, I suppose the background to this is um, as the tracker uh, mortgage uh, crisis kind of reached kind of a, a crescendo late last year, um, the Minister of Finance brought in all the banks into into him to kind of chastise them and, and push them again to... Uh, to really kind of uh, admit to, or, or at least find out, you know, how many people are actually impacted by the by the the, the tracker crisis. Um, and as part of that, the minister said he was uh, he ordered the central bank to carry out this review, root and branch review of culture throughout the the, the, the banking sector. And it took a number of months to do that. Uh, that came out. Um, on, on Tuesday, as you say, and it found a number of things. Um, first and foremost, it found that banks um, still were in kind of a firefighting mode, even a decade after the beginning of the crisis. And, you know, we're looking at uh, urgent and short term uh, issues rather than actually uh, approaching uh, consumers, uh, approaching their decisions with the consumer at, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the forefront. It also found that the directive, uh, there was a very directive uh, style among uh, leaders in, in, in banks themselves and it kind of didn't foster internal debate. So if people were holding up, you know, the, the issue of, of consumers, that that necessarily wasn't necessarily listened to. It was kind of a very directive kind of a leadership style still kind of being used by by, by a leadership, by managers of, of, of the banks. And also found that banks, having come through the crisis, um, were clapping themselves on the back uh, for, for, for actually having come through the crisis and were overly optimistic in terms of how they could actually transition to a culture of actually putting the customer mm. first. And there was a lack of empowerment of senior staff uh, at a more local level, if you like, the, the people who are face-to-face, I guess, with the consumers. Yeah, so again, I mean, basically uh, referring back to the, the top management rather than actually uh, guys below them having the, the, the power to actually make decisions that could, you know, uh, help customers. Right. So having gleaned all of this information, what are they planning to do about it? Yeah, so a number of things. Um, again, no surprises here. There are issues they would have highlighted the, if you were listening or reading speeches uh, from senior uh, regulators in the last few months. A number of these things have already been uh, being, uh, been highlighted. I suppose the main thing is this introduction of a uh, basically a senior um, manager regime similar to the UK. They call it a different name, but basically it means that it would mean legislative changes where 
senior managers would have to put forward uh, to the central bank their list of responsibilities. And so it would make it easier for the central bank, if there is wrongdoing, to pinpoint uh, to the, the senior director who was actually, senior manager who was actually in charge of that area, rather than kind of passing the book and saying somebody else below them uh, was responsible for it. And also, if these senior managers are delegating responsibility, that the senior managers have responsibility themselves to make sure that they've done the, went about it correctly to make sure that the person knows what they're supposed to be doing and also overseeing how they actually manage whatever responsibilities they have. And under this new regime, if they do manage to finger a person responsible for some failure or other, what happens? What happens to that person? Well, it's easier. I mean, there, there are there, there is a fitness and probity regime at the moment. There, there are uh, enforce. There is an enforcement regime as well. So you can um, find a person up to uh, one million uh, if something happened after two thousand and thirteen. You can also ban them indefinitely from from working in a financial services uh, position. Um, but this will make it easier to to pinpoint and actually find wrongdoing and actually pinpoint individuals mm. and, and get them on that rather than some and say, well, actually, it wasn't my responsibility in the first place. It's very clear what your responsibilities are. Also, if you look at the UK, when the UK decided to bring in this type of regime a few years ago, they initially decided to put the, the, the burden of proof on the individual to prove that they had acted appropriately. Um, they had to reverse that in the end, so the burden of proof is on, on the regulators. I imagine to be similar in Ireland as well. There could be constitutional issues. Yeah. David Hall, you've been a long-time critic of the banks. As I mentioned, you've been dealing with mortgage arrears now for a number of years. So it's, uh, I suppose, specifically in that space that you've been critical of them. Um, but just in the broader sense of their behaviour and culture and so forth, does this report go far enough? No, and I think Joe's last part really sums it up, whereby they had fitness and probity powers since Before. 2013. This tracker issue and the real scale of the tracker issue and their behaviour after 2013 is exceptionally relevant, yet not one person was singled out and dealt with under that the existing rules. So making up new rules and having a big happy clappy approach to a nice new report around what needs to be done by a regulatory body that is effectively a banker friendly regulatory body that has a statutory responsibility to consumers. There's a massive conflict, an inherent conflict. All of the tracker behaviour and let the tracker behaviour has multiple components of it. Apart from the standard money that was stolen from customers, their behaviour before the Oireachtas the committee in the Oireachtas, their behaviour towards the central bank, all admitted by parties and witnessed by the public, their uh, behaviour to individual Oireachtas members, that alone is not a cultural change. That's, you know, there's an excuse here to try and pretend that this be this culture uh, behaviour of bankers is pre the crash. That's not the case. Well, then what are you suggesting? Are you suggesting that we should clear out the senior management and all the banks? No, we should have very clear under ultimate responsibility for those people that they should have been sanctioned and punished for their engagement on the tracker stuff alone. Just take the tracker engagement alone. Like, you're talking about culture and bank stuff, uh, Kieran. The Limerick leader has a piece last Thursday for a court case of a lady, a 50-year-old lady being, who's unwell, having her home repossessed. She owes 16000 on her entire mortgage. The house is worth 300000 Francesca McDonough has been in all the papers holding hands and singing Kumbaya by wanting to change the culture in Bank of Ireland now that Richie has gone. That's a Bank of Ireland that's customer. Richie Boucher, the former Richie Boucher, exactly. yeah. That's a, that's, that the blame was that the culture was coming from an aggressive culture that's there. That is a culture last Thursday in the court down in Limerick. So nothing's changed. Nothing will change until there's absolute sanction upon the senior bankers financially and potentially... Uh, well, David, I mean, come on. Something surely must have changed. I mean... Uh, you, your organisation, the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation, which perhaps uh, first brought you to public uh, attention, 
has done joint ventures with the likes of, correct me if I'm wrong, AIB and, and KPC, maybe other banks uh, as well. So surely something must have changed within the culture of the banks for you to do uh, deals with them of that nature. Yeah, but the, And but that was to help out uh, those who were in mortgages. Yeah, and, and, and today we've done 8,000 arrangements across all various lenders on behalf of customers. Some of them are through banks with AIB, KBC and laterally P- PTSB in relation to helping customers. Part of that is they have realised and recognised the cultural change I suggest there is one of a, both a PR understanding that it's better to deal with us and deal with customers want to deal with us and don't want to deal with banks. But why don't doesn't the customer want to deal with its own bank? Like the fundamental failure. If you look at it, um, there's 30,000 people in arrears in more than two years. If you add up all the customers... Well, there's probably a couple of reasons. One is probably fear of, you know, facing up to the problem. But the other one is probably, well, the banks have been bailed out, so sod them, I'm not giving them a bob. I'm going to sit this try, out, sweat it out, One of the days, one of the days if, you, if you had a conference phone here, one of the days would be very interesting would be to ring a bank. As a customer, make the phone call to a bank. 2018, July 2018, forget your tracker stuff, your recession stuff, your pre-crash stuff. July 2018, ring a bank and engage as a customer in arrears and let's see how you get on. The system is horrific. The legal system is horrific. The court system is horrific. So, you know, the case last Thursday is an absolute clear, Chris, this is a priority of Bank of Ireland to take a 50-year-old woman on disability benefit with a loan of 16000 and a house worth three hundred grand to court to repossess her house. That is indicative of the current culture in 2018 and no sanctions since 2013 where they had the powers in place for any bank's uh, behaviour towards tracker and other stuff. The central bank has a bundle of codes um, that you know, Kieran, around customer protection, not just mortgage arrears, business, all types of protections that are in place. But the central bank has a conflicted role. The central bank is there to protect the potential nature of yeah, banks. Yeah, and I've heard others say this as well and that the consumer element should be taken out of the central bank. But didn't we go down that road before and take it out and, and give it to IFSRA, the old IFSRA, the financial services regulator? And that turned out to be a goddamn disaster. Yeah, no, and that's, that is accepted. Like, that doesn't mean it was done correctly. Um, you know, there are ways to do it and there are other regulatory regimes that may be more successful in doing that. But you can't have a, with the greatest respect to, and, and to be fair, Gronje McAvoy is a new lady in charge of consumer protection who my initial dealings with have been very, very positive, but you can't expect a regulatory authority in charge of banks to also have Chinese walls to protect consumers, financial services consumers. They need independent protection. And if ever anyone ever needed a witness to that fact, in the most recent tracker debacle. And just, you know, it's very, very important to see how banks behaved in front of an Oireachtas Committee on Finance. Yeah. How they delayed. We're now in July. I assumed that the... Well, there's no doubt they dragged their feet. Absolutely yeah. no doubt. And but the Central Bank was a bit complicit uh, in, in that as well. It really they got involved put a fire under when, when it went to the Supreme Court, when PTSB took the case to the Supreme Court, that's when the Central Bank got involved. So the Central Bank are complicit in the tracker debacle. Yes, they've recovered slightly in, in how they've handled it recently, to be fair to them. And m- many more tracker customers have been included. And by the way, it's a very important thing to remember and positive that Central Bank, the re- we wrote to the Central Bank, the Iraqis Committee in Finance supported our application to the Central Bank to have this uh, review take place. The reason we asked for the Central Bank to have the review take place is legally, your contract ex- is longer than six so years. So do we need a review of the culture within the Central Bank? We need a separation of consumer protection away from the central bank. It is too cosy, too uh, happy clappy, and it needs to be separated. Uh, Cliff Taylor, you've been writing about this in a column in the Irish Times today and posing the question as to why 10 years on from the financial crash, it took until now for us to have a report on the behaviour and culture within the Irish banks, because to most people, it was broken long ago. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think, as David has said, one of the really striking things over the last few years has been the response to the tracker scandal. So not only had we got the the initial uh, the initial taking of money from people's accounts uh, when it shouldn't have been taken, 
uh, by the banks, but uh, you know a slow response from the central bank initially, and uh, delay, obfuscation, and uh, you know denial by the by the commercial banks, and the, the latter perhaps you know the delay in dealing with it is the most extraordinary thing because they've backed themselves into a corner. Uh, they've ended up distracting huge amounts of management and board time on this, and they've end, ended up costing themselves a load of money. Uh, yeah, some billion, of which yeah, over, a, over a billion euros. Some of which I expect they probably wouldn't have, to, have had to pay uh, anyway, because what's happened now is that people have been, you know, the banks have had to take an exceptionally generous approach pushed by the central bank as to who is included. Uh, some of the cases, a lot of the cases, are crystal clear, but some of them are uh, are probably. Um, you know, questionable or not questionable, but some of them are arguable legally in terms of interpreting contracts or whatever. But the banks have now been told, listen, guys, you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to pay up to pretty much everybody. So it's so so the delay has cost them. Yeah. Joe, where does it go from here? Yeah, I suppose just going back there a second. Um, the interesting from Central Bank as well, that it's only last year that they actually set up a directorate for financial conduct um, under uh, Derville Rowland. Up until then, she had been the director of enforcement. So that's when issues had cropped up as opposed to being more proactive. So it's only really in the last year that the, the Central Bank has actually come up to speed in terms of actually uh, in terms of actually uh, being proactive in terms of uh, financial conduct. But from here on in, I think the ball is pretty much in the Department of Finance's uh, side of the court uh, in terms of it will have to legislate to allow for a senior manager's regime to be set up uh, so you can actually pinpoint and, and uh, individuals and hold them accountable uh, for, for Do we have breaches. any sense if they're minded to do that? Not at this stage but they do have support I mean I think banks uh, through their, their, their own lobbying group uh, support the idea in general you have the union supporting it as well it would be very difficult for, for um, Yeah and the banks are talking about setting up a, a kind of overarching culture board with an independent yeah, chair what, what would that be about? Yeah I mean it's a similar one in the UK and it comes out with a kind of a woolly kind of report every year just in terms of where how culture is it's 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 a it's an all encompassing kind of uh, report. Uh, there's very little detail in it, so I think we'd have to go be above and beyond that. Cliff, would you have any confidence in such a board? No, I have to say I think this is a bit of a distraction on the part of the banks. You know, a bit of a kind of look over there. We're responding. We're doing something. We're setting up this new board to manage culture. I mean, what are bank boards to do if they're not to be responsible for managing the culture, setting the direction? And the culture of their comes from within a bank, doesn't it? it? Does, I mean, you absolutely. can't be prescriptive about a culture. The culture within AIB should be different from Bank of Ireland, permanent TSB. But I, I, I think it was Joe's piece today where the union mentioned, and I'd say on behalf of customers, I guarantee you the central bank engaged with no frontline staff in relation to this review. I guarantee you they engage with no customers. And that actually summarises the entire report to me. Well, how do you know that? Well, the report itself says that. I mean, the report itself um, interviewed, uh, t- most of it was done by uh, desktop-based uh, research, then interviewed, I think, about, uh, carried out 500 surveys of senior guys in the banks, um, 100 per bank. It carried out uh, detailed questionnaires of about 75 senior guys in across the, the banking sector and carried out 75 uh, separate interviews. So this cultural review was around senior management I suppose they had to kind of narrow down the focus and actually start there first. Okay, you mentioned in your introduction an important departure, and that is regional senior staff, the authority they used to have, or people, be they bank, be they farmers, be they small and medium-sized businesses, or be they customers, had a level of authority that they could go to in the local branches where some level of decision could be made, even up to and including opening their account. At the moment, banks, while all this debate and discussion is going on, are having, de- are having tellers open for certain periods of time uh, for cash to be available and you're going in to have a go at a machine when you go in and have yeah. a chat at the moment. I've, so the whole culture... 
is going anti-consumer. I hear what you're saying there, David, but I have to say I, I know of people who are put into those dirt schemes, uh, those dirt avoidance uh, schemes by local managers, uh, you know, the guys who used to look after their interests or whatever. And the local managers were long gone and they were left nursing big tax bills. And the reason this thing's happened now is that most of the people involved are long gone. Um, uh, but ultimately, the local face-to-face person that you're talking to rather than the telephone exchange. Like, banks aren't designed to deal with stuff on telephone. There's a problem in a bank. You end up on the phone with somebody Mm. in a central office that's generally a call centre, a person who doesn't have a mortgage, and they end up going to a script on the screen, where at least where you used to be able to go in face-to-face, there was an element of autonomy and and, and some level of customer. This is customer uh, service. This has been forgotten, and putting the customer central has been ignored and forgotten by banks. Joe? I suppose, I mean... The other side of that is that autonomy was part of the problem as well. Back in the, before the crisis, you had uh, banks delegating responsibilities to uh, local branch managers who would lend to Bogland for, for residential development. And it took a long time for the headquarters to actually find out what kind of lending was going on uh, across the Joe, board. Joe, even for decision making. So you're going in the local branch and you're rocking in to say to the manager, I'm in mortgage arrears, I'm dealing with uh, Balls Bridge or I'm dealing with PTSB in Hat Street or something like that. Nobody's in a position to give you information. You're, you were compelled to ring a call centre, the local branch. I'm not talking about making a decision, even communicating those discussions with you. Yeah, to I make think it there are human. certainly some frustrations yeah, already I mean, dealing what, with what certain the, branches. One of the notable things in the report was that uh, it said, look, managers at kind of the, the next level down from the top, including people operating at a local level, have no autonomy, have no ability to make decisions now. And I take Joe's point that one of the problems before was too much autonomy, but now we have too, too little. And not only is this a problem for customers, but it's also pushing everything onto the desk of the senior people. And according to the central bank report, leaving them at no time to kind of think, to deal with the strategic issues, to set the direction of the bank. They're just firefighting, dealing with applications, dealing with day-to-day stuff rather than doing the proper job of managing the institution. I I don't think it's fair to say that all bankers are the same. I think, you know, you, you, you asked me a question, a legitimate question, that we are working with a number of, of banks, a number of bank staff. It's not fair to say that all bankers at all levels are in any shape or form not helpful or not customer friendly. There are many that are, but you also mentioned, and I think you summarised it quite well, the boards of those individual organisations between yourself and Cliff are the ones that effectively should be setting the culture within their own organisations. And if they have, can't do it, there's no chance of any third party, happy clappy, Boy Scout group doing sure. it. They All need right. to be able to do it themselves. Now, you wear a couple of hats, uh, David. You're also involved in an approved housing association called iCare. It's a rather uh, new venture. Uh, tell us about that and, and where you're at. What, what are your what are your aims? We, we launched 27th of September last year. The previous six years, there had been sort of 260 or 70 mortgage rent cases that were done where people surrender their home. They're in arrears. They're not going to ever be able to restructure their loan. They're eligible for social housing. The plan, which mortgage rent itself is a great plan, its execution was horrific. So we said we would set up our own approved housing body with the sole function of doing mortgage rents. We did so uh, with some finance from AIB and effectively some assistance with AIB to restructure things. We're dealing with all lenders and all vulture funds. Everyone is on board now. And we launched 27th of September. We have our first drawdown scheduled for the first 15 million on the middle of uh, August. And we have the first 99 homes uh, in a pipeline uh, with a further 200 homes behind that with 200 further proposals through the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation with banks eligible for mortgage rent. So it's been a busy 12 months and this is probably the most exciting part now even though it's the quietest time of the year from from a summer perspective but these will be people who will stay in their homes have their debt written off uh, option to buy back their home at the price we pay for it and will stay as social housing tenants with the local authority paying 92% of the market rent and the customer paying the social housing assessment uh, rental uh, from then on in. So it's, it's a practical solution that will keep 
people in their homes and keep them off the housing list and homeless. So the first 99, they're all AIB um, no, mortgages? 50%, no, 50% are AIB. There's Bank of Ireland, there's Permanent TSB, there's Pepper, there's Lapicus, there's uh, Start Mortgages, all on board. Everyone is, is uh, it, it's non-discriminatory. Anyone who's eligible uh, goes okay. through the system. Just one thing, David, that occurs to me. I mean, let's say somebody has 15 years left in the loan and they can't afford it and so on. So they find themselves in this awful situation um, and they end up getting um, a mortgage to rent arrangement with your yourself. What happens at the end of the uh, at the end of the loan period, the the end of the fifteen years, or what happens when, let's say, that couple, um, both of them are, are dead, they're deceased? Um, what happens to what happens to the home at that point? So, at, at the time, they're eligible for social housing means you know social housing income thresholds from all of the various councils vary slightly, but are very very low. It's a very low common denominator. Um, if they're eligible for social housing, they're going to emphatically lose their home. So therefore, mortgage rent operates on the basis where it's a triangular approach where the customer, having gotten separate independent legal advice, surrenders their home back to the bank. We, as I care, purchase the property from the bank. And on the same day, we give a lease to the customer for 25 to 30 years. So you're the legal owner of the home. So the debt is gone. It's now the house we've purchased, not the loan. But the loan and the balance that they out, that's outstanding for the for the couple is written off at the time of the tri- of the triangular approach. So three transactions happen on the same day, giving the customer the best protection. If they're eligible after twenty five years for social housing, the lease rocks on, so they stay there with guaranteed uh, tenure. If their circumstances for twenty five years for 20, minimum twenty five years, if they're still eligible after twenty five okay, years, okay. Well, at twenty five years, on. they're probably well into their sixties. Uh, extends, uh, keeps going, it keeps going, keeps right. going. And, and what happens they're, when they're deceased? Because they'll probably have family members. Some of them might still be living in the. In if, the home, who if knows? they're living in the house and they're on the lease, then the rights to buy back and stay in the house transition, transition to them. If they're uh, siblings and not living in the house and not on the lease, they have no rights. Okay, and um, you know, let's just say it's a couple, no children, and um, they're both deceased. What happens to the home then? House goes into social housing stock. Ring up the council. Next on the list, in they go. Okay, like, it's, it's no longer a, in the ownership of Icare. If Icare still exists, no, Icare stay, keeps ownership of it, it keeps ownership. For, for life. Okay. But we house social housing tenants. Uh, in it when those people either move on or are deceased. It stays in social housing stock forever. And ultimately, how big do you think your stock will, will get to? Um, I would think it'll be exceptionally big because uh, we're young, we're nimble and we're bypassing the bureaucracy as difficult and as, as it is like being in a, in, a, a, in a swamp. I would say uh, by 18 months time, we'll have 500 houses. And I w- we're working with the housing agency with John O'Connor and we have the first batch of uh, houses came through this week from... Uh, one of the banks that are empty, which separate to the mortgage rent st- stock, we believe there's 2,700 empty houses. This is immoral and, and I mean, you don't have all day to discuss this, but there's 2,700 homes that are empty, that are suitable for social housing, that if the minister was so inclined, he could resolve his own crisis very, very quickly. We will start, touch wood, buying those later this year and we probably will buy 500 of those in the same time period of 18 months. So I'm hoping that we'll have between 500 and 1,000 either bought or uh, targeted in the next 18 months with families on average of 3.7 in those houses avoiding homelessness and, as I say, you know, the plan with our board is a practical solution rather than it's great giving out of the banks it's very therapeutic but it's actually better to actually house people and keep them in their homes Sure Cliff Yeah I just I mean I think the mortgage to rent appears to be the only way to kind of square the circle of the the really tough cases Mm. Uh, it deals with the situation on the part of the bank Uh, you know that the loan is closed rather than kind of extending it and splitting a mortgage and kind of just rolling the problem on and it you know allows the family to, to stay in the house which I think everyone agrees in terms of a of, from a social of a family home is is, is the so you know the thing that, the thing, thing that should happen. So it, you know it does appear to be the only way to square the circle of these 
really difficult. So just, and the banks, Post-crash to be fair, cases. Yeah, since we began as iCare, you know, we've been hel- had a help with Respond and others have helped us. The banks have regenerated activity sure. in the whole mortgage rent area. So we're seeing the numbers increase, okay. even from the banks. Nothing to do with iCare, nothing to do with the IMHO. And we had a great engagement recently with MABS and working with MABS to look at numbers. So there's a very clear targeting on those vulnerable people who are eligible for social housing. No one's getting a free house here. They're getting accommodation having lost ownership of their home and their debt written off. It's safe, secure, uh, without with, and dignity. Well, uh, David, just to finish on on this point, is this a signal that the banks are, are you know, the, the culture is changing? Uh, yeah, I would agree. Like it's some people in the banks, I'm not saying all banks. Back all right. to the board again. You know, it can't. You have to square the, the. It's very hard to square it when you've got repossession proceedings against vulnerable people at the same time who are eligible for this, and at the same time you have. Um, you know, you have people willing to put people forward for mortgage rent and write off debt. It is a very complex, right. very confusing place for us, let alone for customers. Sure. OK, well, listen, we wish you well with that. Uh, David Hall, Cliff Taylor and Joe Brennan, thank you for joining us. OK, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking about Brexit with economist Chris Johns and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Now, Brexit continues to loom large on the horizon with a no-deal scenario now, a very distinct possibility by the time the EU exits the European Union in March of next year. To help me assess the latest twists and turns in this long-running saga, our economist and Irish Times columnist Chris Johns and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Uh, Chris, thank you for joining us uh, from the UK. Um, you wrote a very strong column last week at which you said that the in the Irish Times at which you said that the possibility now, the chances of a no-deal Brexit are, are about uh, 50-50. And just earlier today, uh, we learned that the UK and EU formally filed for divorce at the World Trade Organization following many months of diplomatic preparations uh, to smooth the way for this uh, historic exit. I'm not sure if that's a, a, just a, a technical thing that they, they do as part of this process or whether it's something more meaningful, but why do you think a, a no-deal scenario is now more likely than ever before? I think there's a couple of strands to this. Um, one is the obvious one, which is the chaos that the situation finds itself in. They, after the Chequers weekend and that famous white paper that prompted all those resignations, the UK had arrived at an opening negotiating position. It's where they should have been two years ago, and it's where they should have got to before they triggered the Article 50 uh, divorce papers. And um, But it's, it, 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 it was the right thing to do just at the wrong time. You, in any negotiation, you always should have an opening position. The EU's position was announced years ago, as it should have been. They've been much better prepared. So you've got two opening positions, the Chequers document and the EU's uh, opening position, which has been known for a couple of years, which is absolutely clear. You can either have a Canada-style free trade deal or you can have a Norway um, association agreement. And those two negotiating positions are miles apart, but that's what you'd expect at the start of negotiations. And you'd expect then concessions and negotiations and agreements to um, meet somewhere in the middle between the two opening positions. So the fact that both sides are going to make concessions now causes trouble, particularly for the British. 
because the opening position was unacceptable to the hard Brexiteers completely. And so any idea that they're going to make further concessions from that was a red rag to the Rees Mogg and Boris Johnson uh, of this world. Um, and uh, where the EU could soften, there's several areas where I think that they, they could easily have softened. But so where they're going to where they're going to meet in the middle, who knows? And they haven't got much time to do it. So there's so there's all of that why 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 they may not actually reach an agreement. The second reason is it's become apparent to pretty much everybody, including the hard Brexiteers, that this is going to be a complete and utter mess, what, whichever way they exit. And and the blame game or the shifting of the blame game has started. So. Um, everybody's running away from actually saying what they want, what they mean. Well, example of what I mean, uh, Rhys Mogg in an interview this weekend said, I was asked, would, you, would he resign when it, if and when it becomes obvious that Brexit is a disaster? And his response was, it's going to take 50 years to tell. So everybody's running away from this, and the Brexiteers have worked out that um, it's going to be an absolute, you know, chaotic outcome, whatever happens, and they're running away from actually saying what they would do other than just leave. Because any time they put down on paper now or verbally in an interview any kind of a plan, they realize that whatever it is is going to be awful. There are going to be consequences. So we've got stuff going on this week, for example, that talk, official talk of stockpiling, critical medicines, and food, believe it or not. That's a long way from £350 million a week extra for the NHS. We're now talking of stockpiling food. So the fact that it's a complete mess from whichever angle you look at it and the hard Brexiteers are the only position they can find, the only position that they can, um, in their own strange logic, uh, put forward now is just leave, no deal, hard bre- hardest to hard Brexit to deal with the situation. All of that just adds up to the possibility that it is going to be a hard Brexit. Yeah. Cliff, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's there must be, a, as, as Chris said, uh, a reasonable chance now that that's the way it's going to go. Uh you could certainly still see a path to a compromise between the two sides, a way that the thing could be kicked forward. There has been some compromise, hasn't there? I mean, they they have broadly agreed the financial settlement. They have have broadly agreed uh, the citizens' rights, haven't they? Um, And they have sort of broadly agreed that there won't be a hard border in Northern Ireland, although I accept that there's a lot of uh, of detail to be worked out. The latter is a particular problem. And I suppose if you look at, you ask the question, well, what, what needs to happen next to keep things on track? Uh, the next thing that needs to happen is they need to agree a withdrawal agreement. So they need to finalise the terms on which Britain is going to leave. And that requires two things uh, beyond where we are at the moment. One is kind of a general political statement on how the two sides are going to interrelate in future. And if there's kind of goodwill on both sides, maybe that can be kind of enough cans can be kicked down the road to allow that to happen. Although, as Chris said, the politics in the UK is so tricky now that that can't be taken for granted, and also signs that the EU are digging in on a few things. But before that, there also has to be agreement on the famous Irish backstop. In other words, the guarantee that Ireland is looking for of a legal text which will show that uh, no matter what happens in the talks, there'll be no hard border on the island of Ireland, no physical infrastructure. And there are still huge difficulties to that happening. Various compromises being put forward by people uh, complicated, kind of multifaceted mm. uh, ideas of, a, of a plea of by Theresa May for the European Union to to work with her on that. Yeah. You know, given the sort of very difficult uh, backdrop she's facing, and even I mean, maybe sure. I'm wrong, but maybe uh, Leo Varadkar kind of hinting that the European Union needs to be a bit flexible. Yeah, Ireland's 
Ireland's interest is not for the talks to collapse, obviously. Ireland wants... And we don't want a hard Brexit. We don't want a, absolutely, we don't want a hard Brexit, but we also want the border issue tied down insofar as it can be. So those two things are pulling against each other, if you like. So potentially tricky political decisions for Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney as the year goes on, depending on how this, on how this all falls out. But you're right, if the border issue is going to be solved, there is going to be need, need to be flexibility on the EU side. Now, the EU say they've already given that flexibility because they've said that they will allow the North of Ireland to remain in the customs union and single market, effectively inside the EU trading bloc, which is, from their point of view, a concession. But the British don't want that. I mean, Theresa May is exactly. said she doesn't want that. So it looks like the only way to kind of square that circle uh, is for as the current suggestion seems to be, um, that to remain in place, but for the whole of the UK to remain in the customs union for, uh, goods. for a period, or for a period anyway, until some further trade yeah. deal has worked. This is kind of something that sure. is appearing in the ether at the moment. That would be a further give on the part of the EU because, you know, from their point of view, you're either in or you're out. You can't, yeah, be, you can't sure. be half in. Chris, can I just ask you, just in terms of, I mean, we all want to deal out of this. I, I think it's fair to say we all want to deal out of this. I'm just wondering, has the EU overplayed its hand? Has it been too tough in the negotiations uh, with the UK? Because Theresa May has been in a very vulnerable position from the from the outset and more vulnerable now because she called the election and she's a minority position. But she's always um, really struggled to garner a lot of support within the House of Commons uh, for what she wants to do. Now, maybe she made some tactical errors herself. She put in place some red lines early on that maybe she was never going to be able to deliver on. But I just wonder, has the EU um, overplayed its hand? I know people argue that, but I, also, I, would ask, I would answer that by asking a question, well, what else would they have done? They, they, they've adopted a very simple approach. For the, they, they did what any, you know, if you... If, if you if, you were sent on a negotiation skills course, and believe me, business schools run these things. You're told, you know, this is what you've got to do. You set out your own negotiating position. You wait for the other side's opening negotiating position, and then you start making concessions. You meet somewhere in the middle. Um, you have what's called a walkaway price. You know that there are, there's a point at which you will not make any more concessions, but you don't start with where you mean to end up. And they started by saying you can have Canada or you can have Norway. And it's, it was, it, to, to any observer and anybody who knows anything about negotiation, that, that was always going to be their starting position. They were always going to give ground somewhere. We never knew where. But they've not, the British have not given them any opportunity to give ground because there's been, if you think about all of the, the other aspects of negotiation, about trust, goodwill, good faith, um, you've already got the new Brexit secretary this weekend um, reneging or threatening to renege on what's already been agreed with respect to the, the, the divorce bill. Yeah, you know, the amount of money that Britain is going to actually sure. going to have to continue paying. So um, I wonder what, 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 any, what these critics of the EU's position um, would have expected the EU to do. I think I know what a lot of people think that they will do, because on, on the current logic of it, there's either got to be a border between Ireland, North and South, or there's got to be a border down the Irish, middle of the Irish Sea, or the whole of the e, of UK stays in the customs union. It, it, it really is as simple as that. And everybody rules out one or the other, or all three. And that's why we can't see a way forward. The, the, the softening of the position is that the border does get put in the middle of the Irish Sea eventually, maybe at the end of the transition period, or maybe at the end of an extended transition period. And the concession that Europe makes at that point is that the checks that are imposed at the North Northern Ireland's ports and airports are minimal. 
that's the sort of compromise the EU, I think, will probably be prepared to make. Of course, the DUP may or may not swallow it, that, even, even that minimal um, border. But, but to have given ground already to have um, started making concessions when they've never known what the British were asking for, because the British in that time-honoured phrase, it's become a cliche now, have been just negotiating with themselves for the last couple of years. So as a good I accept that point, but I mean, Theresa May did make clear in her speech, I can't remember which one it was now at this stage, but she said, uh, we will be leaving the single market and we will be leaving the customs union. Yeah, um, and so that that's fine. Then you then you know that you can have Canada, or you can have what you, well, take Canada is, is is really the the only the only option left after that. Um, if you're leaving, you're leaving. That's your decision. What do you expect the EU to to respond with? And Chris, is there any merit in what the Brexiteers say about Britain being free to do its own bilateral trade deals? That and the, the you know that puts it in a better position than being part of the EU. So they're going to do a free trade deal with the United States, who are currently conducting a trade war with the rest of the world. Good luck with that. Um, the EU is just, conduct- is just concluding a free trade deal with Japan. Um, it's done one with Canada already. Um, you're already a member of the biggest trading free trading bloc in the yeah. world. Uh, anything There's else? A deal with Australia else, in the pipeline. Anything else is going to be. Um, uh, inferior to that. Yes, they will negotiate a free trade deal, maybe with Australia, but the idea that that could make up for lost trade with the EU, which they are going to experience now in any any possible Brexit scenario from ultra-soft to ultra-hard, they are going to lose trade. Um, I haven't seen anything that persuades me that, that the trade could be made up with new trade deals. Cliff? Yeah, absolutely, and I think the... Um you, you spoke earlier about the applications by the EU and the UK and to the WTO today, and they have highlighted a couple of the practical difficulties, uh, not only in uh, in building new trade deals on the behalf of the UK, but in safeguarding the current arrangements, uh, not only with the EU, but with other countries. Uh, so, for example, the UK currently exports to other countries around the world on the basis of free trade deals which the EU has negotiated. Uh, come Brexit Day, it will hope that those countries will continue to honour those terms. Uh, but there's no obligation on the other countries to do that. Uh, so not only are exports to the um, to the EU threatened, UK exports all around the world uh, could come into question. Secondly, there are, are already rumblings from some of the big agricultural exporters, the likes of Australia and New Zealand and Canada, uh, in relation to the rules under which they they import agricultural products into the into into Europe on the basis of the changes being put forward, so you know the scope for, for for yet more chaos there. And then you know to add insult to injury, if you like, uh, there are a lot of areas of business uh, which aren't covered by the WTO. Uh, you know, take aviation for example, uh, where the UK is bound by the rules and regulations set in Europe. And there's an open uh, skies agreement between Europe open and the United States. States. Exactly, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, ro- and ruled by uh, EU regulators mm-hmm. which guarantee safety, uh, pilots' licences, insurance, all these things. Big question marks about... Well, landing rights. The landing rights are Absolutely. probably the key. Yeah, the key yeah. well, the safety, and the, rules, the safety rules and regulations are as important mm-hmm. because uh, if there is no transition agreement, you know, after the end of March next year, you a new agreement will be needed if UK planes are going to take off and land in Europe. Uh, And nobody is quite clear whether that can be done in time. Sure. Chris, the clock is ticking, not just on Brexit, but also on this podcast. Um, So what's what's going to happen from here? 
It's massively complicated. Don't ever, ever underestimate how complicated it is. This WTO thing that was announced today has been rumbling in the background for a year or two, and it covers only merchandise trade. doesn't cover services. That's going to come next. The British document that was circulated by the WTO today for merchandise trade only is 719 pages long. And they're just starting. And as Cliff has said, the United States, Canada, and Australia have already objected to it. This is, it, it, it's massively complicated. They haven't got enough time. So either this all gets pushed out again so that they don't actually leave next March and that there's a delay to that, and or the transition period, if they get to it, gets extended. So they, they, we don't know how they're going to get there, but this, this has to be a can that's kicked down the road. Cliff, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I was reading a, reading a piece uh, written by Chris Giles in the Financial Times today, and he was writing about the options now for an agreement and the narrowing possibilities for where an agreement might be found to allow Britain and the EU to sign a withdrawal text. And that has to be sorted uh, because that then brings the transition agreement into play, gives an extra and almost two years until the end of 2020. As Chris said, I don't think even that's going to be long enough. But at least it gives a bit more time uh, to try and work some of this awfully complicated stuff So it's about buying out. time at this stage? It's about buying time, but it's also about the high politics of solving the Irish border issue and agreeing some kind of political statement which requires trust on both sides that in very vague and broad terms, this is the way we want to interrelate in future. Both of those things are required for the, the withdrawal agreement to be finalised. Um, and we're still a long way off that. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll come back to this uh, topic, no doubt, on future Inside Business podcasts. Uh, but that's it for this week. Uh, my thanks to Laura Slattery, David Hall, Joe Brennan, Chris Johns and Cliff Taylor. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. 